And you can go ahead and take your seats. Good to see everybody here this morning. For those of you who are just joining us for the first time, um, we are making our way through the book of Revelation to try and demystify what some think is the scariest book in the Bible. Um, but I believe it's uh, one of the most brilliant and climactic books. And so um, that's what we're going to look at this morning in chapter 8, uh, verses 6 through 13. So if you have your Bibles, um, I encourage you to open to them. And um, if not, it'll be on the screen behind me. Before we do that, though, if you would, if I could just uh, encourage you with something that I've been encouraged about. Um, my prayer life has been centered for this church and the church outside these walls on Psalm 85, verse 6, where the psalmist prays, he says, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Revival and rejoice in God as the center and the source of our joy. I believe our church, the church at large, is in need of renewal and revival of our passions, our zeal, um, our commitment to his mission and to the worship of God more than ever. And so I just encourage you, if you wouldn't maybe pray that with me through the, through the weeks, uh, Psalm 85, verse 6, will you not revive us again? With that said, let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for gathering your church together once again as a reminder of the family that we are and will one day be fully and completely in a resurrected new world. We're thankful for the eternal truths that we gather around to remind ourselves that this life is not all there is, that the, the best is yet to come, and that you have paid for it at the greatest possible expense through the blood and sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. In that truth, Lord, we live. In that truth, we rejoice and we hope. And we find our forgiveness and our belonging and our identity. And so I just pray this morning, will you feed your people? And may this just be a part of your renewal of, of your people here and abroad and churches uh, throughout our country. We pray for renewal. Help me, Lord, to present this in a way that is uh, tender and honest, but truthful and firm and uh, protect your people from being misled, too. So I pray that all of us would be the, of the Berean spirit to test everything that's said um, with your word. So Lord, feed us, feed me, as we open your word together in Christ's name. Amen. So I don't know if you've noticed, but um, Voyager 1 was back in the news this week. Now, to you, that might not mean anything, but Voyager 1 was a space probe that was launched in 1997, or 1977. I was 10, as I remember. I was so excited about the idea of us sending something into space. And uh, so they said it was supposed to last for five years, and it's been 44. And it's still sending data, like, back to Earth. It's 70s engineering, right? Why can't they make cars that good? They go 44. <laughs> Years, So it's still blasting this data back to Earth. And, and they say that it's crossed what's called the heliosphere or the boundary of the heliosphere, which is like this bubble that's created by the solar winds of our sun. And so it's passed beyond the border of this, this, this bubble. And now it's in interstellar space. And it picked up a persistent hum. That's kind of cool, right? I mean, it's the, 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 the man-made object that is the farthest away that has ever been. Now, as exciting as that is, and I tend to love that stuff, I've always loved that stuff, you know? The 2001 Space Odyssey, 
that was an awesome movie. And then we passed 2001 and it didn't happen. That was kind of a disappointment. But reading the article, because I do, um, I, I came to something that was actually even more, um, how do I say this, uh, ominous, I suppose. And that is the last pictures that Voyager 1 took and that took them in 1990, so that's 21 years ago, but it was still on the edge of our solar system. They turned the cameras back to take a final set of pictures, and then the camera was turned off forever. And those final pictures were of Earth at almost four billion miles from the sun. And there's a picture that they took of Earth, and I clicked on it, and I'm like, oh my. It's what Carl Sagan called the pale blue dot. Can't really see. Well, you can see a little bit. Pale blue dot, probably three plus billion miles from our home. Or here's a little bit more of a blow up. You are here. <laughs> right? This little tiny blue pale dot is our home. Like sailing through cold space. Things like this kind of just awe me at the size of our God. Like we're told in Isaiah that, you know, God marks off the heavens with the expanse of his hand. And, of course, that's a clumsy metaphor because God is not a material being. Like he holds it like a baseball, the whole thing. And yet what's ironic about the whole thing is that like, God chose to plant a garden on this little blue dot to create life beauty, sounds, colors, and then created this noble creature, creatures, Adam and Eve, to, to rule the cosmos. Kings and queens created after his own image. It's amazing that God would like hone in on this pale blue dot as the center of his work. And then show off by making such a big expanse to place it in. And yet, we know that that pale blue dot revolted and fell. And we believe, if you believe this book, that there is a, a meeting coming between the creator of all this and that pale blue dot in both a climactic display of salvation and also judgment that there is an expiration date on planet Earth, this pale blue dot in which God will then recreate it. Judgment. It's, it's not a topic we like, and it's a, not a topic you may not may want to hear, but it's a topic which is all throughout the Scripture, especially in Revelation, and we're happen to, we happen to come to a dark portion of Revelation. And it's here because God loves us. It's here to illuminate our minds and to... I don't know, provoke us to think outside of the here and now so that we understand ourselves within the context of the large picture of what God is doing. Which brings us to these verses. We have looked at the seven seals and those judgments, and now we begin the seven trumpet judgments. And I, again, just ask you to open yourself to what the Spirit has to teach you through these, because they're not here for no reason. Just a couple of words before we look at them. This is now the second series of judgments, of seven. There's three. There were the seals, 
There are the trumpets, and there are seven bowls yet to come. Now, just as the first four seals hang together, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, so the first four of the trumpets hang together. They focus on destruction of nature. And there is a clear delineation between the first four and the last three, because in verse 13, there's this voice that's flying around saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's a bad word, like ominous word. Um, for the next three or the last three, five, six, and seven. So we're looking at these four together, trumpet one, two, three, and four. You should also recognize that there is a ramping up of these sequences of seven. That is, it kind of ratchets up. There's if, like those battle scenes in a great movie where the drums start slow, and then it starts building up. There's a building up that's happening. Um, whereas the seals, really, the seven seals that are, again, these are images and these are pictures of, of things. The, the first four were largely self-inflicted. That is, they were judgments, general judgments, but self-inflicted. There's war and there's civil unrest that's largely caused by humanity. It's a form of judgment, but it's a form of self-inflicted judgment. When you come to the trumpets, it's as if God is now taking off the gloves and there is a direct involvement. As the angels blow these trumpets, things happen on earth. So there's kind of a, a ramping up. Third preparatory comment is, it's, it seems weird to us, right? This book is like, what is this? Seven angels blowing seven trumpets? It's just weird. <laughs> it's not weird if you just recognize that John is like a master painter, and he's taking all these Old Testament images, and he's painting a picture. There's another place in the Bible, Old Testament in particular, where you find seven trumpets being blown. The great battle of Jericho. You know, one of those great Sunday school stories that have, has every kid on the edge of their seat. You know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And it's a good song, right? Only he didn't actually fight, if you remember. They were just ordered to march around the city once every, every day for seven days. And on the seventh day, they were to march seven times around the city, which would have been completely stupid and insane from a person who is inhabiting Jericho. What are you doing? And at the seventh time on that seventh day, seven priests blew seven trumpets. And what happened? The walls came tumbling down. The idea being that when you get to the seventh trumpet here, kind of echoing this great story of the Battle of Jericho, the walls come tumbling down and judgment is over. As we've suggested that when you get to the seventh and each of the sequences, you come to the end. They are in parallel with one another. So with that said, let me read this. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I... Um, deliberated over this message more than any other. I'll tell you why in a second. But beginning in verse 6, John sees, verse 6, Now the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and the third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, 
Wormwood is a, just a bitter herb. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that the third of their light was darkened, and a third of day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell in the earth. When it says dwell on the earth, those who dwell on the earth, that's a code word for unbelievers. At the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. You can hear those drum beats. Like this, these are some dark words. Now, let me just confess to you or admit that um, this is the deep end of the pool. Some have suggested these are the hardest uh, words to interpret in the book of Revelation, unless you're going to take it in a purely literal manner. And I've found that to be the case, which is why I've deliberated over this. Um, I told somebody yesterday, I've been, I feel like what this sermon has been like being in labor, not that I've ever been in labor for 30 hours, and still I don't have a baby. <laughs> Part of it is because it's, the images can be understood in different ways. So let me just give you an example. So we can interpret the mountain being hurled into the sea as a kingdom, an evil kingdom being destroyed. Mountain is a symbol in the Old Testament for kingdoms, and that's a possible interpretation. The star wormwood, star has been a stock image of an angel or a fallen angel, which could be um, seen as an angel or, or angelic representation of a kingdom. That the darkness of the sun and the moon and the stars is, is not a physical darkness, it's a moral darkness, that God just like hurls humanity into this moral darkness. And those are all possible interpretations, and if you come out on those, we can still barbecue together. Something tips me in a slightly different direction, and here's why. Because it seems that the focus is on realms of nature. That is to say, you have hail and fire destroying things on earth. Then you have this mountain that destroys things in the sea. Then you have this star that destroys the rivers and the streams. And then you have the sky, the heavens darkening. It seems to me this is speaking more of the impact on nature than about a kingdom or an angel. So that tips me in that direction. As I've also said, just again so you understand where I'm coming from, um, it's... It, this is apocalyptic. It's meant to be images, not to, pressed, to be pressed too literally. Um, you think about it, if, if this hail and fire and blood, you know, that destroys a third of the earth, and by the way, the numbers in, in Revelation are largely symbolic of like, so this is a portion as a portion of the whole thing. Then how do we understand a, 50, uh, a third of the earth being burned up? Is this some giant, huge thunderstorm that covers a third of the planet? Is, 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 the, is the star that falls to the earth and turns the waters into wormwood? Or is, it, is, it, is it just a, a big star filled with herbs? <laughs> you, get, you get what I'm saying? So you can't press it too literalistically. At the same time, you can't say that this is just fiction. When we talked about the 144,000, it actually pointed to a particular reality. Talk about the, the seven horns of the, of the lamb, it talks to a particular reality. The multitude without number, a particular reality. We get to the new heavens and the new earth. We want to believe that points to a reality, not a fiction. 
So I think this points to natural phenomenon. However, not to be pressed too literally. In my view, these are things that have cycled through nature and will continue to escalate towards the end. It's not just merely future, but something that has patterned history. So with that said, let me tell you what we can know. Let me draw out like seven points to consider. And mind you, they're short, okay? You will get home for lunch. Seven points for your consideration. And I think they all apply, but then I will sum it up with some personal application. First, it seems to be clear that these trumpet judgments are actions of God. Actions of God. These are, you have this picture of things being hurled down from heaven. These are angels that stand before the throne, blowing these trumpets, and, and things are happening on earth. So there's this direct link of what's happening to the earth, to the throne itself. So these are actions of God. Now you're like, well, that's obvious. I think it needs stating because typically we think of things in nature as random. Think of all those apocalyptic movies that we love. You know, 2012 with John Cusack and Woody Harrelson. Big accidental neutrinos turning the center of the earth upside down. Or deep impact, right? Morgan Freeman has this random asteroid hurling through the earth that's gonna kill the globe, random. And then of course humans have to do something to save themselves. And then there's the best one of all, there's Armageddon, right? Bruce Willis, Ben Affleck, drilling in compressed iron ferrite to try and save the world. And at the last minute, Bruce Willis saves the day by giving his life to save a planet, which is kind of a redemptive theme there. <laughs> Revelation would say, no, this is not random. And Bruce Willis is not your savior, as much as I like my bald-headed friend. <laughs> Perhaps this kind of thing in Revelation should remind us that there are no accidents in history. We look back at 2020, the global impact of, of a virus. However it came to be, we can argue about that until the cows come home. The fact is, it happened, and it changed the world. And mind you, last summer when we're forced outside to, to worship, and then all of a sudden, like, the West Coast is on fire. <laughs> and not caused by man, right? The lightning complex from the sky. Might we be equipped to see that God is on the move? And perhaps these are push notifications from heaven. I'm reminding you, there is an expiration date. That tiny, pale blue dot has a meeting with its creator. So these are works of God. That's what we can know. Two, they are aimed primarily at the natural world, and we've already seen that. You have hail and fire destroying a, th a third of vegetation and fruit trees and stuff like that. You have a third of sea life being terminated. You have a third of the, of the fresh water, springs and, and fountains and, and rivers being poisoned. And then you have the sky 
So these realms of nature. Now these are, these, these are things we take for granted. Our human existence is based upon these four things, among others. You know, we have our, our grain and wheat and we have our barley. We have our cherries and apples and peaches. We live off the land. We have our corn. A third of it's burned up. And again, that's an image. Wow, that's a foundation that's been rocked. The sea. I love my ahi tuna. Cod, salmon, the fish of the sea, the fruit of the sea, the zoo of the sea. Shaken. The water. We have, we have good tap water here. It has some notes of chlorine. <laughs> but... We have good time. We just turn on the faucet and have water. Man, the Lord just sent a drought. That's here. And remind us that water can come and water can go. Then there's the sky, the sun. If you're gardeners, you've probably planted your tomatoes. And you planted your tomatoes in the most sunny spot in your yard because you know without sun you're not going to get tomatoes. Imagine a volcanic plume suffocating the light, and your tomatoes are gone. <laughs> the point being, this, is, this rocks the very foundation of life. And I, I don't say this, and I don't think this is here to scare us. I'm reminded of something similar that's said in Psalm chapter 46, when God says, it wasn't God, it's uh, the psalmist writes, God is our refuge and strength, our very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved to the heart of the sea. That's mountain going into the sea. We don't need to be afraid. We're God's people. But there is a sobering that takes place through this. So we can know this, that they are aimed, I think, at the natural world. Three, they're partial judgments. Now get this. When you get to the second bowl in Revelation 16, all sea life dies. That's big judgment. This is partial. Like I said, little push notifications from heaven saying, by the way, this is a form of judgment. I'm here. There's a meeting date on the calendar of both salvation and judgment. Four. That one was nice and short. Thank you. These Trumpet judgments are cast in Exodus pictures. That is in the book of Exodus. That's why I had Damon read that, because Moses stretched out his staff and the waters of the Nile turned to blood. The first five, at least, are cast in these Exodus plagues, pictures, so forth. The locust, the blood, the hail, the fire. You can, you can see it. I'm not going to read all these, but you can just kind of see the correlation that John is intentionally framing these trumpets in Exodus actions. The hail and fire of Moses of chapter 9, verse 23, and you have the same thing here in Revelation 8, 7. The water to blood, which we read, again, corresponds to Revelation 8, 8, and also the fresh water being poisoned. The darkness over the people of Egypt, but not the people of Goshen. And the darkness, relative darkness, of the sun, moon, and stars. So he is casting this in Exodus terminology. Now that itself 
teaches us other things. Now, in one sense, it's brilliant, right? Like, that's why I love this book. It's like Moses, or John is just like bringing all the Old Testament to paint these pictures of how God is moving towards the finality. It's steeped in Old Testament imagery and wonders. And, but it's not just brilliant. It's instructive because in doing this, he teaches us other things. Which brings us to number five. These trumpets expose the lunacy, the insanity of idolatry, the worship of anything other than, than God. If you remember, like when God brought the plagues down on Pharaoh and on Egypt, it wasn't just down on the natural world, it was a theological judgment. Because the very things that those plagues addressed were gods that they worshipped. So you want to worship the sun god Ra, eh? I'll pull the chain and the light goes out and I'll pull the chain and the light goes back on. Who controls the sun, Pharaoh? It's not Ra, it's me. Oh, you want to worship the Nile because it provides prosperity for you. Guess what? Now everything dies. Guess who owns the Nile? Not you. I think the same thing is going on here. These trumpet judgments are aimed at, like, exposing the, the futility of trusting in created things. Now, we may not worship the god Ra or the god of the Nile. We still have our gods that, that our, our society worships. Productivity. Technology. Technology. Hmm. Didn't do too well for the gas industry. God's a God of technology, too. He can flick his fingers and bring everything to a halt if he wishes. Right? And even the realms of nature, we all depend upon them. If we think we can solve the water crisis through whatever means, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't be responsible with resources God gives us, but at the end of the day, who controls the rain? God does. He can withhold it from California and do all kinds of stuff to remind us, guess who owns the water? I do. Stop trusting in created things. Trust in me as the source of everything you need, the source of your food, the source of your light, the source of the sea. And that, of course, is confirmed. That idea exposes idolatry. When you get to the end or Number six of the trumpets, where you read this, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons. This tells us that these trumpets are aimed at kind of unmasking the futility of worshiping anything other than the one true God who created our little pale blue speck, which leads us to a sixth. That is, these trumpet judgments demonstrate the hardness of the human heart. Question, after all of these plagues on Egypt, did Pharaoh repent? For a minute, right? I can go. Then he decided, nope, I want him back, sent his armies, destroyed the whole lot, just to show how hard is the human heart. And again, you have the same thing working through. This is why I think he's using Exodus as kind of a filter 
is the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works. These, all these things are coming down, but still refuse. Man, do we not see that all around us? Like the world is coming apart. We know that. And yet, for some reason, the world has justified its direction, and it continues to get worse and worse and worse. You're like, wait, stop. Can you just see that everything's being destroyed? Everything that's white is now dark, and dark is white, or light. How long can we go in this direction? There is a hardness of heart. So we've seen this play out in our own personal lives. I'm a family member or a, or a, or a relative who makes a really bad moral choice that leads to a devastating moral consequence. And you think, wow, that consequence would cure their bad decision. But no, they go on to make another bad decision and another one and another one. Pretty soon they have this litany of catastrophic things in their life. And you're thinking, well, why don't you just look back and go, I should probably change. But no, you just keep hurling down the rabbit hole. That is the state of the human heart. It wants what the heart wants, which tells us something wonderful. And that is, if you're here this morning and you believe that God has opened your heart to embrace Jesus as your Savior, that was a miracle of creative proportions. He broke through your hard heart to allow you to come to a humble repentance and faith in Christ. A gracious act. So if, if you believe, whew, that's amazing. It's amazing, and I believe. It's a miracle. God broke through the hard heart. And seventh, these judgments kind of framed in Exodus clothes, I should dress in Exodus clothes to mix my metaphors, um, they point also to a new Exodus. In one sense, the plagues of Egypt were to display the glory of God and his power, but in another sense, they made the way for the freedom of God's people. Right? Pretty soon they were going to leave Egypt and they were going to head towards the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a place of God's presence and revelation, a place of blessing. This kind of hints to us that, guess what? As, as history continues to, I don't know, go downhill, as judgments begin to be poured out, we're looking towards the true and new final exodus. When the people of God, we are freed from the corruption and the enslavements of this world. That is, it points us in the direction of hope. And then we get to the new creation. So these are like seven points of trying to understand these. And they apply it in various ways. But let me just conclude with a couple of personal applications. And then I will pray. First is obvious, and that is if you're here and you don't know the Lord, your first response should be, and if the Lord's talking to you, man, I need to repent and turn. And if you do, a miracle happened this morning. Our tiny, pale blue dot has an expiration date. On that, the theologians and scientists agree. They just disagree as to how it's going to come to an end. There's a meeting with your maker and my maker, and that should compel you if God is opening your eyes to say, I believe, I want to believe. There's no, there's no magic about becoming a Christian. You don't have to walk an aisle or say a prayer. 
All the Bible says is you need to repent and believe. Believe that Jesus has done what he's done on your behalf. That's an obvious one. Second, I think this should create in us uh, like a grateful sobriety, a spiritual sobriety for what we have in Christ. It's so easy to be like, like Dorothy and her friends intoxicated by the poppies of, of the Emerald City and to forget why we're here to become sucked into the attainments, the allurements, and the accrual of life. And we forget, wait, why am I here? When we read passages like this, we're like, wait. Wait. They have kind of a little bit of a wake-up effect on us. And it should. To, to wake, wake us up, that's sobriety. And to, to have a, a greater sense of urgency and, and passion and intention about who we are in Christ and what we're supposed to do as followers of Christ. That is, it, it has a good, sobering effect on us, and at the same time, grateful. Because, man, Jesus took the wrath that is expressed in these trumpets on our behalf. So we don't have to be afraid anymore. There is therefore now no condemnation. We are out from under the threat of this. Because of Christ, because of God, because of his love. Man, that should create a sense of gratitude in us. A sober gratitude. And third, and this is probably the most difficult to put into play. But it needs to be said and it needs to be done. We need to commit ourselves as Christians who are committed to the gospel to sharing not just the good news, but also the bad news. We, you know, Christians have a hard enough time just sharing the good news because people don't want to hear the name Jesus anymore. Look what Jesus did for you. But coupled with that, there has to be this communication of the bad news too. Otherwise, it just makes no sense. So we, we, we have to share that. I mean, Jesus spoke of hell more than he spoke of heaven, and we, we should learn from that. He just didn't teach us positive things. He showed us the positive against the negative so that we could better understand why he came, the cross. Why did he need to die? Just to make a better life for you or to give you your best life now? No. He came to deliver us from this eschatological, cosmic, global judgment when he took judgment on that Good Friday on our behalf. Think about it this way. <laughs> Titanic is sinking just started to take on water, and you're on deck. And our world is, is the Titanic. It is sinking. There's an expiration date. And you walk into the, all the people gathered and eating, and they have the fine china and the crystal and the sterling silver, and they're eating their smoked duck, their prime rib, and sipping on their French wine, and they're acting like nothing's wrong because at this point, the, the, the ship doesn't feel like it's going down. And here's these people engrossed in their pleasures. And you say to them, hey, how would you like to go on a midnight cruise on a lifeboat? It's called grace. It's called Jesus. Would you like to go? 
what? And leave my smoked duck and leave my sterling silver and my, my crystal goblet with wine? No, of course not. Why would I want to get on a lifeboat? This is so much better. Well, what if I told you that this lifeboat is going to take you to a new place? It's wonderful. It's better than you can possibly imagine. Way better than America. Will you get on a lifeboat? They'd probably say, why would I want to? This is great. But the minute that you say, two hours from now, your china, this smoke duck and this crystal, is going to be lying in a watery grave at the bottom of a dark, cold ocean, and everybody in this ship will die. Would you like to go for a ride on a lifeboat? I think they'd say, absolutely. They'd be killing each other to find it, get on board. And Why is it that we don't like bad news? We feast on it all the time. Like the environmental prophets are telling us of the, the horrors of global warming. People listen to that. Now we're not going to have gas cars made in California. Whatever you think about the, the environment, the fact of the matter is people listen to the bad news. Our governor said that half the population of Cal California was going to get COVID last year. And people listen to the bad news, and some people still haven't come out of their homes because they listen to the bad news. There's political bad news. The political prophets are telling us the alt-right is horrible, and so is the alt-left. There is the insidious socialism and Marxism making its way into our world. And people are listening. Listen, that compared to Revelation chapter 8, that ain't bad news. You want to know the real bad news? Our pale blue dot is going to meet God. If you want to hear bad news, that's the worst news. But here's the thing. The almighty, unsearchable God became flesh and blood on that pale blue dot to give us life so we wouldn't have to face God in his anger, but in his love, grace, and acceptance. If we don't share the bad news, they won't hear the good news. We have to share both, and we have to be committed to do it. The rest of the world's talking about bad news. Some people entertain themselves on bad news. This is the most important news of all. And it serves, once again, to show us the importance and the centrality of Christ and his work. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it keeps us centered. It doesn't allow us to flow off the... the the side of, 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 of this overly positivistic, no negative, at the same time, it reminds us of your love and your mercy that you've poured out for us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. And we're just, we're grateful for your truth. It keeps us centered. And I just pray that we stay centered as your people. And again, I pray, will you not revive us again, O Lord, that your people may rejoice in you. Amen.